This is a Federal News Network podcast. The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy, trends, innovations, and debate. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Today, my guest on Off the Shelf is Jason Miller. Jason is the executive editor for Federal News Network, and uh, this is, again, one of our quarterly shows or so, and um, we're at the beginning of a new calendar year, and it's a great opportunity to take a look back at what happened in 2021 from a procurement perspective and a little bit of sneak peek on what we see as big issues moving forward in 2022. So first of all, Jason, welcome to the show, and Happy New Year. You know, Roger, I always enjoy hanging out with you. Uh, you get to turn the tables on me once in a while. I know you enjoy that. And then I turn them right back at you. And so so uh, thanks for having me on as always. And, and of course, Happy New Year 2022. As everyone says, it's got to be better than 2021. Well, I hope so. It's uh, We're getting off to a slow start, right? A little bit. So, uh, But maybe this wave will blow through and we can move on to bigger and better things, I hope. Um, but anyway, so, uh, you know, 2021, um, you know, just what, what stood out to you from a procurement perspective in the market? The couple of things that when I look back over the last 12 months that stood out was let's start with Astro, the big GSA, you know, U- UAV contract. It got out the door. It got awarded. Uh, I don't think there were any protests of it. And they awarded, I don't know, a few hundred vendors or something. It was maybe 300 vendors, if I remember correctly. And that's the first one that, you know, did not make price a major evaluation factor or the prices at the task order level. And I'm so excited for that. I'm so excited to see how that works. <laughs> I'm so excited to finally stop with the price issues at the top end of the, the contract, do it at the bottom end when, when the task orders. So you got to give kudos to GSA for getting out the door. And of course, you know, you, Roger, you got to give kudos to Emily Murphy, who really spearheaded this, the former GSA administrator during the Trump administration, who really led this effort. So kudos to the, to all the folks there. At the same time, GSA, you know, one of our favorite topics struggled a little bit. You know, Polaris is still working its way through. There's a lot of people waiting to see what happens there. I think that's a big storyline for 2022, of course. And at the same time, uh, 2JIT, the 2GIT contract, is, is that got off the ground also in 2021. I think you'll see a lot from them in uh, 2022 and how that kind of moves forward and, and gets the uptake across the government. And finally, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the CIO SP4 challenges. A lot of people in industry are unhappy with what NITEC is doing. I look at it from a different perspective. Now, I'm not bidding on that, so maybe that's why, Roger. But, you know, they've had something like 23 bid protests, and they've won 22 of them. If that was your batting average, Roger, I know you're a big baseball fan. You'd, you'd be in the Hall of Fame. So uh, I think uh, even though people are frustrated by it at times and, and NITEC could do a better job with communicating, I think generally speaking, uh, that is, is, is worked out as best as you can expect a huge contract like this. And again, another storyline that we will be following in 2022. Yeah, um, first of all, just to, to the record straight is I'm a baseball and football guy, not a I mean, a basketball and football guy, not a baseball guy. Just not a baseball guy. Well, there's no baseball in Maine. That's why. Yeah. Well, I mean, we like the Red Sox, but you know, <laughs> you know. So, um, uh, 
you know, with regard, I know another thing you'd looked a little bit is the dashboards and the performance of the GWAX and Oasis. Um, you know, my sense is they have had another, you know, really good year across GSA and the task order contracts. Absolutely. And when you just look at the GSA dashboard, and, and again, I love the GSA dashboard. I probably spend maybe not as much time as others on it, but I do enjoy going there. And, you know, if you look at some of the GWAX, 8A Stars 2 and 3, Alliant 2, Vets 2, uh, agency spent about $6.2 billion across those four contracts in 2021, about 562 task orders. Uh, some of the, the agencies, you know, DHS was a big user, 99 task orders across those contracts. Another one, Treasury was a big user. Same thing with uh, HHS. So it's interesting to see kind of how things fall out. Uh, Homeland Security, Roger, spent $1.1 billion across those 99 task orders. So th- again, big users. Among the companies that did quite well, uh, SAIC was the big winner, $735 million through those uh, task orders. Booz Allen, Hamilton, also big, $625 million. And as far as just sheer numbers, uh, Accenture Federal won 16 task orders, Booz Allen 25. So it just gives you a sense of, of who's winning and who's up and who's down across the market on those specific GWACs. Now, how does that compare, Roger, for to 2020, for instance? I, I think what we'll see from 2020 to 2021 is, is, is probably more money in 2021. Um, right. and, and again, it takes about six months or three months until DOD finishes yeah. up. But just looking at the dashboard for 2020, agency spent $4.3 billion on those contracts, 8A Stars 2, Alliant 2, and Vets 2. So you'll already see that's a $2 billion increase year over year. Right. Uh, you haven't got you, all the DOD numbers, to your point, right? Right. So I think that you, know, you might even see it increase even, even more. Um, uh, the, the other piece of this is uh, you know, Oasis, and you have Oasis and Oasis Small Business. And again, just in 2021 alone, about $11 billion on Oasis, which is huge. I mean, that just shows you, again, what what folks are doing with in terms of the need for service contracting. And when you look at the, the big winners or the big spenders, DOD, again, over $15 billion in estimated sales, $1.5 billion in estimated obligations, uh, HHS, $980 million in, in, in estimated sales compared to 207 in obligations. Homeland Security, $4.5 billion in sales, $743 million in obligations. So it just gives you a sense of, of, of some of those agencies that are using these contracts and how they're using them. So, so again, contracting is up, 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 and, and you, know, you see it from the numbers, Roger. Right. So, and you, you go back to just a big gear for GSA going into 2022, because to you mentioned the Polaris. And where that's going, we have the Services Mac, aka Oasis 2, the Oasis follow on um, coming up this year as well. And then we also have Alliant 2, where the ceiling is you know, being approached, and GSA is going to have to make some business decisions there, what they're going to do moving forward to, to meet customer agency needs. So it's going to be a, a jam packed year for GSA just on, on that front alone. My colleague, David Thornton, actually reported on this issue around Alliant 2 just back in November. He wrote a really interesting story. It's right around the fourth anniversary of Alliant 2. I think, Roger, this may have been at your the Coalition for Government Procurement's uh, fall training conference, in fact, where Laura Stanton talked about that Alliant 2 was about to very quickly approach its $50 billion ceiling, much faster than expected. She said there's uh, about 20, just under $20 billion left on that contract. And as you saw last year, it was a very popular contract. And they're already starting to work on Alliant 3. They're starting to do some initial market research, uh, I think. So there's something else to watch out for in 2022, how 
GSA starts to begin the rollout of line three, what kind of RFIs they put out, what kind of market research they're doing, what kind of discussions with industry they're having. So uh, I think you're absolutely right. This has been a, a banner year for GSA. At the same time, it puts a lot of pre- downward pressure on their contracts. Right. And I think you, and you also mentioned earlier the uh, Astro, the success of Astro, very well run procurement. Um, and its use of the 876 authority where they didn't have to evaluate price at the contract level, you know, with Polaris, I think is taking advantage of that. Um, I, can, I imagine, you know, services Mac will as well. They've talked about it and Alliant three. Um, I assume that's what they're going to call it. It would make sense from a marketing perspective. Um, they'll probably utilize that authority as well. So um, GSA is going to be in the leader in, in experience. There'll be a lot to learn from using the authority and what does it mean at the task order level for competition? And that doesn't even get into some of the other things. GSA just held an industry day the other day uh, about electronic, uh, electric vehicles, not electronic vehicles, electric vehicles. And I think that's a big push. We'll talk about sustainability maybe later in the show as well. But that's another area you'll see a lot of push from GSA over the, last, over the next year. And I think not just from GSA, I think a lot of agencies are really moving into, okay, how can they make their procurement process what they buy you know, the green government is back. I mean, it was, or, you know, came, right. came on big in the, during the Obama administration and kind of tailed off. And then it, we hadn't talked about it for several years. And I think we're, we're talking about it again. Yeah. Coalition has a green committee, right? I mean, and it, um, we, we didn't have a lot of meetings, uh, the last four years. So, but now this is going to be very active. We've already had a couple of meetings, um, since the administration's, uh, come into play. So, um, I know we're getting close to the end of the segment. Um, and we're going to move to talk about things in the, in the break. I wanted to talk a little bit about cloud, um, and what happened this past year and what we can expect in the new year and also the GSA's e-commerce pilot. And then we can figure out where else we want to go as well. Okay. Sound good, Jason? That works for me. Okay. Well, my guest today is Jason Miller. He's the executive editor for Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Jason Miller. He is the executive editor of Federal News Network, and we're taking a look back at 2021 and a sneak peek forward on some what we see some of the big, you know, I guess, issues, programs shaping, you know, the procurement landscape for the next year. Um, and Jason, you know, I know we're going to talk about e-commerce a little bit and also some cloud stuff, but first, and you know, I think it'd be best to talk a little bit about the GAO's bid protest report, because last segment, we talked a lot about task order contracting and the success of GSA's program, you know, the follow on of, uh, COSB4 and, you know, and what's going on there and, and two gets, all these things are being put in place and they're all multiple award tasking the delivery order contracts and, I think there's some interesting sort of parallels and data coming out about the, on bid protests related to task order contracts, multiple award. There's one thing I look forward to each kind of November timeframe, maybe mid to late November, is the GAO report to Congress on uh, bid protests. I don't know. It's just that it's that time of year. And I know at that point, Roger, that we're in the holiday season when that <laughs> yes, report it's, comes out. It's like a it's like an early Early uh, you know, holiday present, right? <laughs> Early holiday present. There you go. Yeah. So this year, what was interesting about the GAO report and what stood out to me is, is the number of protests, generally speaking, are down 12% fewer this year in 2021 than in 2020. But, always a but, the number of task order protests, while down compared to the previous year, 
still was the second highest ever at 401 uh, task order protests. That only pales in comparison to 2020 when we saw 417. So you're seeing a rise in protests. In fact, because the number of protests dropped and the number of task order protests stayed on the high level, uh, it, it accounted for 21% of all protests. Now that's up from 19% of all protests in 2020 and 17 of all protests in 2019. So you're seeing a, a move, a shift. Now, Roger, a lot of folks in the community really had some concern when GAO was granted this authority by Congress back almost 13 years ago. And everyone thought, oh my goodness, GAO is going to be inundated with task order protests. There are going to be hundreds of, upon hundreds of task order protests. And there hasn't been. But I think the tide is starting to turn a little bit. And I think that with all these other big contracts coming, you mentioned a bunch of them, and we, we talked about a bunch of them last segment. I, I would assume that there is going to be a move that we're going to see more task order protests in the coming year. Yeah, and I, um, there's two things going on there. Like, obviously, protests of the contract awards, that's always high stakes because, you know, it's, there's a lot of work going, obviously, a big chunk of work going through all these multiple board contracts, and you got to be on them to be able to play and compete, right? So that's going to continue to be an issue. At the task order level, yeah, definitely the increase in the percentage in terms of the number of protests and staying at a high level over 400 the last couple of years, um, I think that reflects that the continued significant use of these contract vehicles by customer agencies. And I'd be interested to see, I know they, they talk about in their report, like the different bases of protest, whether it's, you know, lack of discussions or unreasonable evaluation or things like that. It'd be good to take a look at at just the task order protests and what's the basis of protests. Cause I, I just know, you know, over the years, and I remember when I was at GSA, when this authority first was created or even just under schedules where you can protest any size order, we're always trying to preach to agency customer agencies, keep it as simple as possible. Don't make complicated, you know, source selection processes. That's not what this is designed to do. It's designed to be a streamlined task order. And the more you apply Part 15 and all the complex rules around that, you know, GAO is going to hold you to those rules once you start applying them. Um, and, you know, that's just lots of grounds there for opportunities for protest. So it'd be good to see what exactly they're focusing on and what people are protesting and whether it's related to the complexity of what the government is putting out there. While we don't have like tons of specifics about it, GAO does list the top four reasons for sustaining protests. And the sustainment, the top four are unreasonable technical evaluation, which is something I think that's always number one. But interestingly enough, the second one this year was flawed discussions and then unreasonable cost price evaluation. And then the four was unequal treatment. Now, of the experts I talked to for a story I wrote back in November, Flawed discussions was one that really stood out to a bunch of different uh, procurement lawyer experts that I spoke with because they're basically saying when when agencies talk and engage offers, are they giving them the same information? Are they are they providing them in information differently in different ways? And I think that was in you know, years previously, uh, I was told that this was a very difficult point to win on a protest because it's a very subjective concept. But I think what GAO is basically saying here and what they've seen in a lot of their cases is there is an objective line that agencies are trying to cross about what is fair, how, how to have those conversations. So I find that just fascinating that flawed discussions jumped into the top two 
of the reasons for sustainment of protests. Yeah, I just I wonder about, you know, it's easy for GAO, unless they've changed their mindset, to say, you know, whether it's prejudicial or not. It's in some ways, it's actually easier to say, well, this communication or lack of communication to a um, to a company in the course of the evaluation. Well, but for that happening, what would have happened? And it's it's easier to sort of say, okay, there could be prejudice there. Therefore, we'll grant the protest. And I just wonder what what role that's playing in it as well. Um, Any other thoughts on the protest report? The only other thing I'll just point out that I thought was uh, worthwhile is this idea about cost reasonableness. And and, and GAO highlighted this in their thing. And and, and what agencies and what vendors are doing is, are agencies willing to pay for more experienced workers who tend to cost more? In in the high-tech area, which is, you know, we all know there's a shortage of cybersecurity workers, project managers, software coders. You know, when a vendor comes in at a higher price, are agencies really doing best value trade-offs or are they sticking to low price? And and what I've been told from, from several lawyers I've talked to is that it seems to be based on the trends through this protest report that the, the agencies have to kind of, they're getting their head around that sometimes you got to pay more for more experience and, and you just can't go cheap all the time, which I know, Roger, that's a, that's a big bugaboo for you uh, as you wrote a column about the tyranny of low price. That's right. Well, yeah, maybe those uh, lawyers and those other agencies should talk to GSA uh, schedules uh, contracting officers about you know how they're handling price negotiations. Um, that that just definitely remains a significant issue uh, across the schedules program, at least from what we hear. You know, reflecting a certain sense of lack of understanding where the market's gone and the cost of doing business. You know, in the current environment, and something that's not going to go away over time. You know, inflation. I hate to say it, I do not believe it's in, it's transitory at this point, and costs whether it's shipping raw materials, labor, all those things have gone up and it's just the market dynamic. And, you know, and as well, the concept where the government is thinking about additional requirements, whether it's sustainability, right? Or, you know, um, and that could go to life cycle costs. It goes to the materials that potentially used in a product. It goes to the performance characteristics of that. That costs money. And you're not going to get the sustainability goals you want. You're not going to achieve them on a low price, technically acceptable model. Um, so it's, there's a, just a lot going on there. And again, we're going around this this issue, and this is a favorite thing of yours. You know, the real price you pay, at least especially for um, services, is based on the unique requirements of the agency at the task order level. That's where the focus on competition and price and value, again, best value, should be focused and not you know, creating a low price um, dynamic for a program that's supposed to reflect the commercial marketplace. We wrote a story about a year ago, really focusing on some tactics that that some in the community called bullying, that, that they felt they were being bullied by GSA to really get the lower price, much lower price. You got to get a lower price, even though the support, the, the evidence was not clear that why should my price be any lower than it is? And, and in a sense, it's interesting that here we are a year later that, that Roger, you're still seeing some of those challenges uh, out there. Do you get a sense that it's the focus on low prices is a cultural thing that, that people got pushed in one direction and just can't move off that direction? Or is it coming from somewhere else? Is it, is that, is it a belief that contractors make too much money? Why is the question? Part of it, I think is that, you know, there, there, it goes to 
Um, you know, one of the things GSA doesn't have, and I know we're in the virtual world right now, but they'll have an in-person training class to address price in the schedules context. And they're in the midst of a change, like they're going from the old commercial sales practices format and price reduction clause model to the transactional data reporting model, which relies more on traditional part 15 type price analysis and that sort of thing. And I think they're, you know, contracting officers are all over the map because there's no sort of consistency and approach across GSA or no good training on like, you know, we're talking about market conditions that has changed pricing. It's got to be a win-win for both to have successful business outcomes for government mission, frankly. And, you know, it's so, Uh, there's got to be some better education. I think, you know, one of the things we're going to talk to GSA about is reverse industry days, just talking about the commercial market and bringing people in to talk about what's going on, what people need to think about, how do they need to approach these things as a customer. And then, so there's a lot of training issues that need to be addressed, whether we're seeing arbitrary requests for, you know, 10, 20, 30% price reductions on rates that have already been determined fair and reasonable. Labor costs do not go down. Like they don't go down for anybody. They don't go down for the government, right? You know, there's cost of living every year. There's step increases. There's all those things, grade, you know, promotions that happen for high-performing employees. Same thing happens in the private sector. There's got to be some sense uh, a better under, think, understanding of business operations would be very helpful. I think your point's really important. The reverse industry day has been a success for DHS, has been a success for the IRS, has been a success for GSA to a certain extent. And I think given where we are with supply chain challenges, given we are where we are with the pandemic, it seems to be the right time for GSA, for DHS, for DOD, for whomever to hold, to start talking to industry in a way. What has changed over the last couple of years? How hard is it for you to meet this requirement or this type of requirement? So, Roger, I will be happy to uh, hold a reverse industry day with you. You and I can. Uh, and we'll invite the GSA folks, you know, contracting folks. I mean, to your point, you make a very good point. You know, when you start talking about supply chain and if we're looking for a resilient supply chain and you've got cyber requirements as well, you know, you're talking about whether you're going to make it to make a product domestically or in allied countries versus adversary countries, that all goes to cost. And there's definitely needs to, you know, on the supply side, you know, there's got to be incentives for people to build things in the country. And on the demand side, you know, it's going to reflect some additional cost at some point, um, at least for a while, while, you know, to try to reconstitute some of these things. So, and I think, you know, there's got to be some focus on that moving forward. Um, and I know we're, I see we're up on the break, uh, Jason. So when we come back, let's talk about cloud. Um, and we didn't get to talk about it. the cloud, um, multi government as a multi cloud customer and also the e-commerce pilot and where we go from here with some NDAA language coming out. Um, and then we could also talk a little bit about, um, OFPP. I know we're still awaiting confirmation of a new administrator for federal procurement policy. And what does that all mean? My guest today is Jason Miller. He's the executive editor for Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Jason Miller. He's the executive editor for Federal News Network, and we're taking a look back at 2021 and a 
sneak peek at uh, 2022 and some of the issues. And I know something that you've covered over the years and continue to cover is, is the cloud. Um, so, so I could say, what's the forecast, Jason? But that'd be looking forward. Um, do you have any thoughts on, on what happened in 2021 first? GSA did a couple of things that I think were interesting. First, obviously, they released RFI. Then they followed up very late in, in 2021 with uh, the kind of the first round of, of plans for their government-wide blanket purchase agreement for cloud services. It, it's interesting because they first came out and said, oh, well, we'll make an award in January. And then other awards for other pools will come later on. And then they took a step back and said, we're not going to make you know, an award in January will make everything's kind of TBD in 2022. So they're moving forward with this. And, and I think there's a lot of concern uh, and, and you all have expressed your concerns about it to GSA when it comes to the cloud, another BPA on top of the schedules that already exist. You and I have talked on this show, you know, how I feel about anything on top of a schedule. <laughs> it, it still makes no sense to me, no matter how many times you and other people who are much smarter than me have explained it to me. But it seems like they're paving over the cow path. They are, you know, uh, sw- trying to swallow the ocean again in one gulp instead of understanding that, that you have qualified cloud providers. They already exist on the schedule. You could create, they already have a special item number on cloud. They've already done all these things. Why do they feel like they need another vehicle on top of a vehicle is still beyond me. And this is not just for cloud, but this is cybersecurity and, and other types of if you remember during the OPM breach, they created a BPA on the schedule for identity, you know, uh, uh, management type services for, you know, when, when folks had their identity stolen, they didn't need to do that. They, those already existed. Those services existed. So it would be interesting to see how this plays out. And again, what's the protest? Because you're, you're saying we're going to have a limited number of people in the pool. So who are we going to not include in the pool? And you get into a, I'm sorry to say this, DOD Jedi situation where folks are feeling like, well, if I'm not in, I'm out and I can't be out. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't want to get into another, you know, the, you know, theoretical discussion or whatever you want to call it about BPAs. Suffice <laughs> it to say, I, you know, our view is like requirements-based BPAs for agency-specific requirements make sense. A government-wide generic BPA um, is sort of to your point. I what you what you say like paving, paving the, cow. the cow path. Yeah, that's I hadn't heard that one before, but now um, that's a that's a Mark Foreman original. Come uh, on. Okay, well, I, and I always refer <laughs> oh. to boiling the ocean as opposed to swallowing the ocean. But anyway, there you go. Um, it's, so to your point, you know, if there are things that the BPA reflect that customer agencies want on a government basis, why not incorporate those into the underlying contract and the special item number? and then compete the task orders. Um, so and I, I know, the, I mean, by 2GSA's credit, they've been very open. They've been very willing to engage and discuss these things. And, you know, and, and it's been a good conversation. And we look forward, I think industry looks forward to having continued conversation as they move forward. We all want the same goal, different strategies, different approaches, and different considerations. So we'll look forward to that. Um, I just, you know, and I, I do think the government, you know, is a multi, as a multi-cloud customer, you know, sort of consistent with what happened commercially is something to watch in 2022. There's a lot of interest in the, the obviously the cloud is still going to play a big role. We're seeing agencies put more workloads, more applications in the cloud. 
and you're going to see decisions made. For instance, the Defense Department made a decision to close down the, their Mill Cloud 2 offering in mid-2022. That was very surprising. Uh, I think they believe their joint warfighter cloud capability, the JWCC, will be in place by then, and, and, peop- and folks will be able to either push workloads from Mill Cloud 2 to JWCC vendors, or uh, at least uh, they'll start to be able to buy off of them. What I think is missing in this entire conversation, whether it's GSA or DOD or whomever, is so many workloads are already in the cloud. So many agencies have already moved and they understand who they like and why they like it and the challenges they face in using one cloud over the other. How are these different and new capabilities meeting existing needs versus right? what a lot of agencies are looking for are the tools and the and the services that they want in the cloud not the platform or the infrastructure really, but really the software. And I think time and again, I've heard from agencies and CIOs, software as a service, software as a service. That's where we want to go. That's where we're heading. And what cloud you use becomes less important, if you will, than what service you use, which goes back to the services contract that the GSA is pushing for that we've talked about a little bit. Right. So I want to now shift sort of to, it's a service contract, but it's a pilot. Um, in a lot of ways, it's a product and a service contract, correct, frankly. Um, and that's um, the e-commerce pilot that GSA has been had put in place and is continuing, you know, and they have talked about it and you know, provided some updates on it, this, you know, in 2021. Um, and, you know, and I now I know there's some NDA language that I think is going to fu- influence it in 2022. What's what's that all about, Jason? The NDA is like, again, another great Christmas present or holiday present, you know, during the, the fall time. Sure. There's so much absolutely. in there. Yeah. I literally have probably uh, 10 or 12 pages of notes from the NDA on things outside of DOD or very specific to DOD that, that other agencies should be aware of. And one of, the, one of those things that popped up was the e-commerce portal testing. And what Congress told GSA and the House contained this provision, the Senate agreed They're directing GSA to begin testing other e-commerce portal models and provide a report to the committees in the summary of their findings and test results. Now, GSA had said earlier last year that they were not going to test other models. They were too expensive. They were cost prohibitive. It was too much effort in many ways. I mean, they didn't see the value in it. And and Congress is not happy about that. And, you know, maybe some of those folks who said we can't get a fair shake got their lobbying together and got Congress to change, or maybe Congress didn't agree with the report that GSA gave them, but but basically uh, GSA now is on the hook to test these other models. So I think that's going to be a big storyline to follow in 2022. The other piece of it is, and, and I wrote about this last fall, is GSA for a long time, I talked about the e-commerce market as $6 billion. This is a $6 billion market that we're trying to tap into and capture the data and put some organization and standardization around. When I talked to GSA, based on those reports that they send to Congress, the biggest thing that stood out to me was all of a sudden this was a $500 million marketplace, not a $6 billion marketplace. Now, still a lot of money. I'm not downplaying that it's $500 million, but what has changed? Why did it change? What did GSA learn? And, and those answers are harder to come by about why they decided that, that that marketplace shrunk by, I don't do math well, Roger, but I'll say by a lot. Like 90%. 90%. There you go. <laughs> right. So, um, yeah. Um, I, I think there's a couple, there's some interesting things going on there. I think, you know, and I wrote a blog about, you know, the 
pilot and competition under it. And I think it serves government customer agencies well. I think it's it, it serves industry well. And even in the current um, platform providers, competition's a good thing. It's what creates innovation, right? It's what competitors figure out better ways to do things. And that includes the people who have pilots right now, pilot contracts. Um, there's opportunity there. And I think also, you know, one of the things when you think about testing that model, the more competition you have at different types, you could actually grow the market share for all the people participating in it. So, I mean, that's you know kind of logical. When you limit it, you you limit limit its potential growth, and that's for all the companies who who could potentially who are under it and could potentially compete under it. Um, so, as part of it, I also think over the long term, there's still a potential for lots of growth from this channel. Um, especially, you know, as, you know, you know, the GSA contracting, you know, world for the multiple award schedule continues to, uh, frankly, be, you know, be challenging in some sense for uh, industry and, you know, the negotiation, and all that process, right? I, I still, and, and also the ease of use of a lot of these things. It'd be interesting to see how they, GSA sets up, you know, a further testing of these other, you know, models um, in the context of, you know, the current models that they've already, you know, created a framework around. I think, I think they can do it. Um, I don't know what you would call it, a pilot schedule or whatever, but they could write the rules around it. They have a lot of discretion there. And keep in mind, one thing that GSA told me, and I think this is a fair statement, is they laid out the different models. It was, it was an e-commerce, e-marketplace, and what was the third one, e-portal? E um, E-procurement. E I think e-procurement. Yeah. They said they laid out those three models in the beginning and, and maybe those three models are not the right three models. Maybe there's another model or two other models that they can test now based on what they've learned. So I give them some credit to say, this is what we did a couple years ago. Now our thinking has changed. So there are other models they can test. It doesn't have to be the, the two that they laid out initially. So I, I think that's something again, to be, to, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. So, and I, you know, and there could be hybrids, you know, it could be like, it's not just one size fits all to your point. And it is an evolving, you know, the commercial market is evolving and, you know, e-marketplace e platforms, you can change and evolve just as e-commerce or e-procurement uh, models. Um, and it would, it's going to be interesting to see how it all plays out. I think the long-term key to success in this area is, you know, you know, figuring out that compliance piece, I think for the the platform for the e for e commerce, and how to assess that in the context. That's the one difference between vetted contracts. You know that that's the area where I think some you know figure that out, and you know there's a lots of opportunity for growth uh, in that in that arena. So, and I know we're up on the uh, break, Jason. When we come back, let's you know we we haven't talked about. You know, the elephant in the room, which is always cyber, in my view, you know, and CMMC's sort of, you know, evol evolving um, in from the end of last year into this year. So we'll talk a little bit about that. My guest today is Jason Miller. He's the executive editor for Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Jason Miller. The executive editor of Federal News Network, and we've been taking a look back at 2021 
and a sneak peek sort of uh, at 2022 from a procurement perspective. And, you know, the elephant in the room, as I mentioned at the end of the last segment, for me is always the cybersecurity uh, aspect of things. It's, it's ubiquitous, right? It's And it's not just a federal government issue. It's, a you know, obviously a private sector commercial issue. It's And it's a near-peer adversary. It's everything, right? It's national security. So all those things wrapped into up into one. And, um, you know, Jason, I want you to get your thoughts with just, you know, what, what stood at you last year and what you sort of anticipate moving into 2022. The two big things I'll point out, I think, is the emergence of zero trust as a concept rather than just a buzzword. I think so many agencies and vendors specifically love to talk about, we got to move to zero trust. And I think with the executive order from President Joe Biden that came out in May, that really kind of gave that concept, that idea, the, the kick in the butt, if you will, that it needed to move from, oh, we got to do it to now we're actually doing it. And you have to give OMB for the draft zero trust strategy. You got to give the cybersecurity infrastructure security agency, CISA, uh, a lot of credit for the maturity model around zero trust to really help agencies make better decisions and figure out, okay, how do we go from A to B to C to D? The other piece that when we talk about cyber is you got to talk about CMMC, the Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification Program. And it's been two years that DOD has been working on this. 2022, I think in many ways for a lot of people and in a lot of people's minds is make or break for DOD. If they're going to make CMMC work and really make progress in securing the data that vendors and industry partners hold, this has got to be the year that they do more than just talk about it. DOD rolled out late late in 2021, CMMC 2.0. There's a lot of changes in there and, and a lot of less burden on agencies. And they go back to self-attestation, which is a lot a huge concern for agencies uh, and a huge concern for a lot of the, the kind of the experts. Because, Roger, we know that 800, NIST 800-171, which called for self-attestation for years, it was not as effective as many people thought. And when you hear DOD talk about the amount of data that's being lost to China, to Russia, to to you know industry espionage because vendors are not doing enough to secure the government's data or their own IP, you really think self-attestation is the answer. Again, there's so many questions that have come up, and, and I'm not sure what the answer is, but it's going to make my job a lot of fun over the next year. Yeah, I think, um, you know, first of all, I think the executive order – as clearly someone had been thinking about it a lot uh, when the Biden administration came out with their executive order on cyber security. Um, there's lots of things in there. It's, yeah, I think, you know, um, lots of focus and clearly somebody, the wish list and of things people clearly thought it through uh, quite well, but that's just the first step, right? To to your point. And then the, what the implementation looks like moving forward and how agencies get to that um you know that's all stuff we're all going to be working on over the course of the next year um you know and one of the things that you know and i think also the cmmc issue goes to in part like it's it's also reducing the burdens on small businesses right the revisions to it in a certain sense and um you know the so we'll have to. So Roger, let yes. me let me jump in there because I, I disagree on the burdens of small businesses. I think that was a, it's a it's a little bit of a false narrative. Yes, what DoD was requiring to go through the the, the third party process may have been very difficult, but small businesses. I mean, it's it's known that some 
small businesses have a harder time hiring cybersecurity experts, understanding the requirements for cybersecurity. So if you're just saying, well, continue to self-attestation because we know this was burdensome, there has to be a happy medium. And, I, and I'm interested to know what would that be? Can it be more than self-attestation, but less than a third-party certifier? You know, I think one of the big complaints over CMMC was they had ISO standards, they had CMMI standards, they had other things, ANSI standards that they could have used as a stepping stone toward the bigger level three CMMC requirements that DOD chose not to use. I would have liked to have them seeing some sort of ISO standard to, to or something like that to, as a requirement, as a, as a mid-step between the level three CMMC needing a third-party accreditor and self-attestation. I get what you're saying. And I guess what I, when, I, when I hear what you say, I think about, you know, I go back to our discussion on the tyranny of low price. And perhaps, you know, something, you know, if, if, if um, small business contracting is, you know, is a policy um, goal of any administration um, and it bumps up against cybersecurity requirements and other requirements, that, you know, there's somebody's got to think about how do you invest in that to address it, to make sure you that there are the safe, I guess, and secure opportunities for small business. And that's yet something I don't think people have, you know, you know, directly addressed or, or grappled with. Well, I remember DOD made a lot of news when they said that CMMC costs would be an allowable cost. Yeah. Right. And that nothing ever kind of came from that. You know, could DOD could have had some sort of small business program where they would pay for something? Could they could have were given some sort of uh, credit? I don't, I don't know how it would work. But, you know, could Congress have allocated money for DOD to get the small businesses to help small businesses, maybe not pay for hundred percent, but Hey, if you pay for 50% of it, that's better than nothing. So I, I think that's why I said, I think there's a happy medium and, and I don't know why no one's thought of what that happy medium is. Well, you know, with that, I, it's mentioning small businesses. My intent was also to turn to small business as a sort of last topic on the show. And um, you know, the Biden administration is very focused on, you know, small business opportunities, equity and diversity, and in particular, the president's identification of, uh, uh, you know, increasing uh, contracting with uh, uh, small disadvantaged businesses by uh, what it was, a, you know, 100% over five or six years. Um, I think 15% this year, 11% this year, and up to 15% by 2025. Okay. Yeah. So, um, yeah, you know, your thought, what did you see this year? What, what what are your thoughts on this? One of the most interesting things that I've reported on, and it really came to focus this year, is the, the, the Biden administration deserves credit for trying to increase the pie. What they're missing is how to increase the marketplace, because the number of small business contractors, and this applies to small disadvantage, to women-owned businesses, to 8As, to HUBZone, all the above, service-disabled veteran-owned small businesses, that market is shrinking. The number of, of, of contractors in the market have been shrinking over the last three or four years. So what is the Biden administration doing to not only grow the market share of these small businesses, but also grow the numbers? Now, some of the shrinkage is due to M&A, right? The mergers and acquisitions has been huge over the last several years. A lot of big companies buying small businesses, a lot of small businesses buying other small businesses to get bigger. So I think some of that is natural and I think it's healthy, but the number of 
vendors have gone out of business. And you can see this, Roger, this is a, my, one of my favorite topics too. I'll go back to is like the GSA office supplies, strategic sourcing, that and category management have been really hard on small businesses. And I think that you saw that with the Biden administration changing the way they're doing category management to address some of the problems that, that have, have come up over the last three or four years. So I think that's the one big elephant in the room that has not been answered is how do you grow the marketplace? And, and I think until we have an OFPP administrator, another hot topic that we didn't get to, until we see some action from the small business community, SBA specifically has to lead that, that's going to be a question that's hanging out there of how to meet those new goals that the administration is setting. Yeah. And I'll just, um, to close on this, um, is, you know, reduced streamlining acquisition helps lifts all boats, but I think it lifts small business even more. Small business does not operate on the same margins you know, you mentioned we were talking about cyber and, you know, having, you know, hiring, you know, experts in that field and the cost of small businesses versus larger businesses. I just say streamlining helps large businesses, but I think it helps small businesses even more and focus on commercial item contracting and breaking down barriers that, you know, a whole, you know, that's fundamental in my view. And, the more government unique requirements you place on on industry or government contractors, uh, you know, that eats in the into the ability of small businesses to effectively participate and compete in the federal market. So I go back to basics and, you know, the blocking and tackling to use a football um, reference. Um, that's where I think you could, you know, start there and then see what else you need to do to improve opportunities for small business. Cause I think that could, again, you know, and the schedules would be a good, great place to look at that schedules are a very successful small business program. And I think there's still even more opportunity in that program as well, breaking down barriers. So I want to thank my guest today, Jason Miller. He's the executive editor for federal news network. I'm Roger Waldron and you've been listening to off the shelf on federal news network. You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Tune in Tuesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. your best every day, you need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. And that's where the sleep number bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, my sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher. And did you know eight out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples, Temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 Smart Bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. 
And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 Special Edition Smart Bed. Plus, special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number, the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details.